Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we welcome back Dr. Matthew Muir for part B of Mind Body Veterinary Medicine. If you've listened to our other podcasts with Dr. Matt, you will know he is an integrative vet at All Natural Vet Care and is interested in wellness and preventative healthcare, nutrition, botanical medicine, and all disciplines linked to the gut, skin, brain axis. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. So in part A of this two-part series, we discussed psychoneuroimmunology and uh, what, what that actually meant, um, some of the... Um, clinical presentations of disruption to these systems. And today we're going to be learning all about the different therapies that we have available to be able to apply those concepts in practice. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. Uh, really excited to talk about this. Uh, yeah, so we touched on all of these interactions and bi-directional pathways and looking at the immune system and hormones, neurotransmitters, the role of uh, the gut and the brain um, and the microbiota axis and psychoneuroimmunology. So today, really, I wanted to share some of the research that has come out recently that, that's exciting me um, and start thinking about some of the ways that we can translate this amazing emerging field into every everyday solutions in practice. I think it's quite important with this stuff to understand that uh, there's there's way more research needed to understand the finer details of these mechanisms. But I do think we can take a kind of top-level approach and a bit of common sense and translation from what's happening in rodent models and in, in human clinical trials to say, okay, there, there might be some some things here that we can do uh, that, it, that it's not too preliminary to incorporate these into our practice with the right informed consent process with our pet guardians to say, okay, what, where are we going? What can we do? Um, and I'd like to break it down in this, this field of, of mind-body medicine to talk about, okay, we need to consider chronic stress. That's, that's really important to consider uh, its impact on disease processes or, or on the pathogenesis of future disease, which I'd like to be way more upstream and try to endeavour to be upstream with the pets that are in my care that uh, we're looking at chronic stress and we're looking at, okay, uh, we can think about diet is the, the, mm-hmm. the classic one that I think we need to be thinking about all the time. Yep. Um, so we think about, okay, what can we do with the diet? Um, that's daily medicine for a pet, like daily chronic administration of, of, of medicine um, is, is food. So we think about that. We think about the role of herbal medicine, the role of nutritional supplements and nutraceuticals, and then some of the other uh, uh, techniques and, and modalities that we touched on last week um, and sort of starting to think about the exciting and, and uh, roles and, and promise uh, that we're seeing with things like electroacupuncture of the ear, um, acupuncture in general, uh, and then the, the therapeutic touch and biofeedback and some of the relaxation protocols um, from the behaviourist vets, uh, as well as um, some sleep hygiene for our pets, which I think is increasingly important. Yes, for everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So exciting. So let's start with the gut-brain axis. So how can we start to manipulate this gut-brain axis? What tools do we have in our toolkit? Sure. So I think the gut-brain axis, uh, with regards to where the evidence is, we we need to look at saying, okay, well, if we're thinking about how can uh, modification of the diet affect the gut is is the first place to go and sort of looking at, and with that, the gut microbiota. Uh, so with that, we're kind of looking at some of the research around IBD, um, uh, allergies, uh, and, and the role of the microbiota there. So that's one place to start. It's important to understand that in 2020, there was some really key, in my opinion, research that was published around this, a paper by Willie Mon- et al. Um, 2020 on the role of pre, um, pro and postbiotics um, mm-hmm. for a bunch of disease processes and, and how we can manipulate that's come come to light, um, as well as uh, some other papers about some 
some probiotics and prebiotics. Um, and and it, most interestingly, if we're thinking about gut-brain access and putting this all together, is uh, a, a new round of research that's come out on the, the gut microbiome uh, peculiarities of dogs that have phobic disorders and also aggression. So mm. there, there seems to be with aggressive dogs and phobic or anxious dogs that there's these different um, what they call layouts of the microbiome. So there's different uh, bacteria and usually subdominant types of bacteria that kind of rise to to power, if you like, in the aggressive dogs. Um, and some of these these um, uh, these strains of bacteria that are overrepresented are linked to abdominal pain in humans. And and we started to think, okay, yes, this we don't know if it's chicken before the egg with these changes, but certainly these changes are there. So we can say, all right. Well, can we outcompete them with healthier strains of, of probiotics? Um, is that dangerous? Um, what do we know about this? Is it? Do we need to think about the prebiotic um, mm-hmm. components of the diet? Whether we need to add additional prebiotics? Um, and most importantly, I think is are, are our pets digesting? the food that we're feeding them properly, um, uh, is it balanced, one? Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly to answer the first part of your question, because that was a bit of a tangent. Um, <laughs> it's okay, is, love tangents. <laughs> yeah, tangents are great. Um, <laughs> that uh, with the diet, we need it to be complete and balanced um, to AFCO as a bare minimum for this because I think whilst um, – whilst there's a lot going on in the pet nutrition space, we need to think that, okay, we can talk and get excited about the role of magnesium or zinc um, and B6 as cofactors for um, GABA um, production in the brain and and balancing out the glutamate and glutamine metabolism and all of this sort of stuff. And we can get quite fancy and be like, okay, we need this dog needs more magnesium, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But we need to think that if the diet's well, the base diet's well balanced, then we shouldn't even, we need to be, we could be moving on from those sort of things. So I think that's quite important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the diet diet balanced? Mm -hmm. Now with, with behavior and diet, I wanted to put it out there that yes, the science is pretty limited at this stage on, on, okay, what does a, uh, anxiety relieving diet look like? Mm -hmm. Okay. But what I want to do, and I think in part one when we talked about the the clear um, what's clearly coming through with this paradigm shift with the evidence of saying, okay, there is a real gut, brain, skin, uh, microbiota access, so they, they, these accesses uh, are becoming clearly demonstrated, um, is that, okay, I want to put it out there to say, can we think about doing a elimination and provocation diet mm-hmm. for behavioural challenges? Like what, there, there isn't there's still so much trial and error, particularly in um, the the specialty of um, dermatology to say, all right, well, we don't, like in dermatology, we don't predict and look at the microbiome, even though we know the microbiome is heavily involved in, in particularly atopy, mm-hmm. um, to say, when we're not at a point where we're predicting and personalizing or individualizing in the case of animals um, the the kind of diet that's going to be the best fit for their for their skin um, right so what we need to think about is saying can we start looking at saying all right well we want to do a behavioral elimination diet we want to our hypothesis is that uh, this this current food isn't agreeing with them um, it isn't agreeing with how their microbiome and their value tone is is talking to their brain it's just not working like and that could be food intolerance mm-hmm. it could be low grade or um, grumbling or emerging um, uh, chronic enteropathy that hasn't really manifested yet as significant clinical signs how can we say all right well let's do a 12-week trial on a food that's got a different protein um, mm-hmm. to carbohydrate quotient, let's um, do a, a different um, protein digestibility um, and let's see what their behaviour does mm-hmm. over the next three to six months. So, I mean, that's similar to what people would be doing with a GAPS diet with, say, a, a child that has behavioural challenges. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, that that research has been around for a while in 
the human literature and certainly it's almost mainstream in some of um, some human clinicians, I would say. Yeah. So is that sort of what you're trying to bring to the veterinary world? Well, that's, I mean, that's what I'm doing in clinic. Like, mm. I mean, my, my client, like a client yesterday said to me that, um, that when their dog eats chicken, um, he gets uh, digestive signs, mm-hmm. um, but he also gets, he's like, chicken looks like he's had uh, multiple coffees. Like he's really, really hyperactive from the chicken. That's interesting. Um, and we know in the human world that there's um there's electrical activity on the brain when when like kids are exposed to wheat dust if they're highly wheat sensitive mm-hmm. like the there's we know that the the brain can get the too much uh, excitation and and foods that disagree or food intolerance can be um, excitotoxic mm-hmm. um, so so that's that because I think at the moment um, and I'd like to um, certainly put some of the key research papers that I'm drawing upon for today um, in the show notes and links um, because I think it's important to say when you read these papers, uh, your head will be spinning with regards to what's happening with the microbiome. Like in this 2020 paper about phobic dogs, um, they they had their diets were enriched with lactobacillus, and lactobacillus rhamnosus is got um, uh, evidence in both humans and mice to uh, show signs of having anxiolytic effects. So we're saying, why does the microbiome of a dog that's got like profound phobia um, have more lactobacillus? And mm. I wonder if it's like a self-medication intelligence system. I, I don't know. I don't know if people know that. Um, it's also new. That's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's super interesting. Um, and and so the the precision around diet recommendations is coming, and I think it will be personalised. And some of the 2020 papers are, are saying that's that's where it's going. Um, so if we're saying okay. My it, it looks it looks like uh, increased beta diversity and increased richness of the microbiota with some key trends with regards to the firmicutes to bacteroides ratios like generally regarded at this point as uh, indicative of a healthy um, gut microbiota. Um, then we'd say, okay, well, what what can we do? What hypotheses can we test out using elimination diets to increase the diversity of the microbiome, um, microbiota? And the way that I'd be looking to do that generally is using uh, a moderate, highly digestible protein diet mm-hmm. with adequate fibre, mixed fermentable fibres with prebiotics, and a low GI complex carb um, mm-hmm. component. I do. So what would that, if we're thinking about actual foods in a bowl, Yes. can you list an example of what a meal would look yeah. like? Yeah, definitely. With, that, so with those ratios? With, with those ratios, I'd be sort of saying, look, um, it, and it really depends on how, like that the dog does or doesn't have um, like uh, medically diagnosed IBD, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So this is a dog that's like at least... Uh, only subclinically or yep. m- mild um, uh, gastro gastro signs, um, and certainly these diets are just broadly speaking macronutrient um, yeah, ratios, and, and we need to complete and balance them. But looking, I'd be looking at saying, okay, I think a lot of dogs would do better if they're on something like forty to fifty, even sixty percent um, uh, minimally processed animal protein, mm-hmm. um, and then looking at maybe like ten to twenty percent low GI complex carbs, mm-hmm. and then the rest being uh, some leafy green veg and, and colourful above ground veggies, mm-hmm. um, and then the appropriate levels of fat. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that and ideally that'd be grass fed meat because when we're looking at uh, getting the right um, omega six to three balance, um, which I think yeah. should be kind of less that less than five to one, somewhere between three to four to one, depending on which equations used, because there's LA plus AA to ALA plus DHA and plus EPA and it's arguable whether the ALA should be sort of put on that side of the equation yeah. with bioavailability. So uh, so looking at LA um, plus AA um, as a ratio to EPA and DHA, sort of looking around that three to four, four to one mm-hmm. um, with uh, – so, so – Doing that kind of diet where we've got uh, carbs that's kind of less than 20%, um, but mm. higher, sorry, more complex carbs. So, so like, we're thinking uh, like sweet potato. Sweet potato, quinoa, yeah. butternut squash mash. Trying yeah. to avoid gluten? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think the, the evidence uh, isn't really 
like I, I take a precautionary principle approach mm-hmm. to to using um, modern day wheat, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the foods that are coming out of the US, um, mm-hmm. with the concerns around GMO and and glyphosate uh, levels and and that that sort of. And that would be the same with corn and rice. Not so much GMOs for rice, but... Not so much GMO. I think uh, soy and corn, I think, are the the concerning ones for me. But the other thing to point out with wheat, uh, away from the kind of gluten argument with pets, because I think there's certainly not really the kind of celiac kind of approach with dogs, uh, except for maybe some um, familial issues with um, iris setters. Um, But... Uh, ultimately, uh, I think about more about the the postprandial hyperglycemia from mm-hmm. these high GI mm-hmm. diets and, mm-hmm. and the role that plays in driving mm-hmm. chronic metabolic inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, um, and then the concerns about uh, elevated insulin with uh, cancer and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's normally why I steer clear of the carbs. Yep. Um, so I'm looking at using carbs strategically at a lower level in the diet. Um, uh, I guess if we translate it to what people see with their own mood stabilisation with high GI diets. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly the, I think the evidence base is emerging here. It's just not there yet in pets to say that they're calmer on a food that they don't have the, the sugar swings. Yeah. Um, but that I think a lot of people see that yeah. in, in their day-to-day house. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, the other important thing to think about with moderate protein, and I do think that a lot of animals are on too high a protein um, or the protein is in inferior quality. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where the the raw um, movement might be onto something with the with the ability for raw meat to be a higher quality bioavailable protein. Mm-hmm. But what we want to do, we, we don't want protein undigested in in large polypeptides entering the colon. Um, We want to avoid putrefaction. Um, And with that, we're seeing that a lot of the postbiotics, which I think we touched on last time, these these the if protein gets into the the hind gut it starts fermenting and producing a whole bunch of uh, probably and I think it's pretty clear that they're they're pathological metabolites indoles etc mm-hmm. that um, are nephrotoxic um, that they they, um, they flare atopy etc so we're thinking okay. And certainly looking at this 2020 paper about postbiotics, they're saying, okay, well, if you use moderate protein or higher protein, but you use um, uh, prebiotics, maybe mass, phos, uh, inulin, um, and whether that diet's hydrolyzed or not, um, uh, and sometimes there is a, a role, I'd say, to some extent for hydrolyzed diets, for sure, particularly in clinical patients that Mm -hmm. you can't. uh, I I normally go down the route of uh, uh, minimally processed quality animal protein first. Mm -hmm. But what we want to see is that, uh, yes, if you can feed more fibre, and I think this is what people are getting largely wrong with home prepared diets and how they're feeding diets, if they're sort of going away from the like uber conventional 100% kibble movement, and I think we have to find that middle ground, is that uh, they're not uh, providing enough fibre, either from animal sources or plant sources, because I think to do full-blown raw where people are feeding hooves and fur and all of that, like that's all very prebiotic. Um, Interestingly also, like a lot of the fatty acids um, uh, are prebiotic um, as well. Um, But ultimately, I think that the kind of grain-free movement had total uh, legs as far as I'm concerned. But to me, a lot of the the, um, positive anecdotes around grain-free in its early days, um, uh, before it was kind of like hijacked with then high legume content, highly processed food was that it was, it was this, it, I'm sure it's the starch, like the high the starch. The change in the blood sugar swings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In that, um, the people saying, oh, my dog's coat, like my dog did so much better off a high, uh, like a, they so, did so much better on a grain-free diet. Most of where that started, I think, was people doing more of the whole food, like uh, moderate protein, low, uh, low GI carbs, low total carbs, like high omega-3, um, easily digestible antioxidant rich. I think that's where people, that's where yeah. grain free started. Yeah. And then it kind of went a little bit uh, AWOL. Um, and uh, if, I think that you can't replace a grain containing high starch, high glycemic index kibble, that's 50% carbs like, uh, and replace that with a high, G, a high starch non-grain diet that's still 50% yeah. carbs. Yeah. Um, that's still really processed and and see like that I don't think that was what we needed to do no so that's kind of where I'd go I'd be saying okay I would eliminate a dog on that yeah. it's 
some dogs might do worse on it. Um, it's super complex around the role of tryptophan and um, large neutral amino acid um, blockade of the brain. Some dogs get uh, worse on a high-protein diet, especially around territorial aggression. Um, yes. The Purina Research Institute do have done quite a, a good sort of summary and it's it's a good jumping-off platform to, to read what they've done, um, but always th- through the lens, in my opinion, of like what their their kind of um, uh, approach to feeding has has been to date. I think that needs to be sort of uh, looked at um, and taken with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, I see that a lot of the big pe- um, big players in nutrition are, are moving more into saying, oh, "Okay, wait a minute, we probably uh, need to look more at high protein, mm-hmm. um, low carb." And I think the most telling thing, this is a bit of a rant, but, you know, everyone that knows me knows I like to rant about pet food, <laughs> um, that the, the, the mainstream professions talking about the obesity crisis, we don't see obesity in our clinic. Like we don't see diabetes in our clinic and it's not, and they're both really obvious things to diagnose. Yeah. And majority of the pat- patients in our clinic are on a higher protein, lower carb diet. Yeah. Certainly in human medicine, that's how they generally get weight loss. Yeah. Yes, moder- like moderate fat and, and care around that. But looking at this evidence from 2020, uh, obesity, which is this major problem, um, very much linked to dysbiotic microbiomes, very there's very um, bad um, beta diversity and alpha diversity in in the bacteria that's present. There's uh, underrepresent underrepresentation of of I think ruminococci and other um, uh, microbiota features of of a skinny dog. Mm-hmm. So uh, and and now um, these big companies are conceding that high um, high protein low carb. Um, moderate fat uh, can shape um, the microbiota and facilitate weight loss. Um, and uh, in my experience, way more um, effectively with to avoid relapse. Mm. Um, For long yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. they just yo-yo, I think, on yeah. some of the other um, strategies around macronutrient um, manipulation. And then certainly fibre plays a role um, yeah. there. So I think the big takeaway with food is thinking, okay, is there enough fibre in this diet? Mm-hmm. Um, is the glycemic index, um, which it's it, it's not fully, it's, it's certainly a holistic thing, the glycemic index, but it's it's kind of the principles can be translated from human medicine and and certainly we are seeing like metabolic stress elevated homocysteine through like the dog risk project and they're certainly looking at that metabolic um, like syndrome in pets, which I think we've talked about on a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, more fiber, um, uh, testing, like testing the hypothesis with the diet to say, okay, if we can ramp up, um, uh, if we can calm down the behavior by sort of, uh, uh, ramping up the nutritional quality, um, and, and certainly alongside that, all of the polyphenols and, and, uh, antioxidants that come in with the fresh veggies and mm-hmm. colourful veggies, which I think is probably a nice segue for us to talk about herbal medicine, I yes. would say. Yeah. Yes, that was going to be my next question as well. So yeah. how are we going to add that into the mix? Yeah, so I think herbal medicine is um, uh, amazing. Like I, it, it blows my mind every every time I uh, sort of do further research into herbal medicine. And for, from my perspective, I have done further certificates in herbal medicine, further training. So I think it's important that vets out there who are just um, dipping their toe in the water with this to sort of uh, do their own research and, and reach out to people that are more experienced. Mm-hmm. But herbal medicine, I think at this stage, I wanted to touch on some of the informed consent that I would do in my clinic. Um, I think that by and large, as a whole, it's sort of recognised that herbal medicine at the moment is uh, really a complementary or adjunctive therapy um, still um, and that it's really to be used um, in on compassionate grounds based on the level of evidence when uh, we've got refractory disease or um, uh, intolerable um, adverse events or side effects um, from uh, standard of care medicine. But I wanted to put it out there that I think that that's a, a total missed opportunity for how we could be looking after our pets if we just focus on that. The the evidence base isn't robust for a lot of the herbal medicine that's being used in and has been used for the last 30 years plus 
us in veterinary medicine. However, the pockets of um, mode of actions and clinical trials in humans and pilot studies, uh, um, placebo-controlled um, pilot studies that are happening in uh, dogs and certainly what's happening in rodents, I think when you put that all together, I think it's reasonably evidence-informed to say, okay, from a compassionate use perspective and um, and with the right informed consent that we can start building some of these therapies uh, into into clinic and and I see what we we've mostly been doing is using herbal medicine as nutraceuticals, which is great, um, and using uh, key isolates or key um, extracts both through um, the pet food and also nutraceuticals. And I think, great, if that's how these um, uh, botanicals are getting into a dog's body, um, fantastic. But if we're thinking about herbal medicine as a whole, it's really important to talk about synergism um, Mm -hmm. and thinking about um, what's going on when we use multiple compounds. And I think this freaks out a lot of the researchers because they see these as really complex, um, difficult things to to navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, But fortunately, with all of the machine learning and random forest and all of the metabolomics that we're using to to look at targets and and active constituents nowadays, it's with the AI and machine learning that we touched on last uh, time with with that information technology, it's starting to become quite easy to sort of say, okay, yeah, we can be comfortable in complexity with this. Mm -hmm. And then we, we back that up with saying, these, particularly the synergistic formulas that are used from um, Ayurveda or traditional Chinese veterinary medicine and traditional Chinese medicine as a whole, um, they, they're using traditional evidence to inform uh, proof of concept and preclinical evidence and, and certainly compassionate use, I think is is um, really fair enough and, and in line with the World Health Organization's traditional medicines strategy mm-hmm. um, to say, okay, well, this whole concept of generally regarded as safe with food um, needs to be sort of, uh, we need to be mindful of that with the use of herbal medicine as well. Mm -hmm. But what's cool is that the evidence, like the the Western evidence paradigm of these herbs um, is coming Mm -hmm. um, and and emerging. Um, And so when I'm looking at what herbs I think are most exciting in this space of gut-brain access mo- uh, modification and HPA access endocrine um, uh, modulation, the the standouts for me, um, I mean, there's lots of them, but uh, and certainly different herbalists would uh, be more proficient with using different formulas. But the ones that um, I'm, I use in clinic um, with the appropriate informed consent with my clients um, would be uh, th- that have some pretty cool evidence in this in this field um, that we're discussing would be reishi mushroom, Ganoderma mm-hmm. lucidum, um, withania or ashwagandha, mm-hmm. um, withania uh, somnifera, um, and then zaoyasan or rambling ease powder, um, which is a Chinese powder. I haven't heard of that last one. Um, I think it was, I think it's one of the herbs that um, that uh, Kathy talked about that she was using as well. But zaoyasan is, um, it's a, it depends, there's a couple of different formulations of it, but the main veterinary formulation's got some like eight herbs in it. Um, some of them people will probably recognise from uh, day-to-day Western herbal medicine or what you might see at a human pharmacy so or what you might have heard of in an old wives' tale, et cetera, which would think things like ginger, mm-hmm. um, mint, um, licorice, mm-hmm. like they, they feature. Yep. Yep. Um, but then they feature alongside other herbs, um, including berplurum, um, chai hu, which is a super interesting herb, um, anti-inflammatory, hepatoprotective, um, antioxidant, um, a bunch of other mechanisms of action are emerging. Um, Angelica, um, peony, attractylodes. Mm-hmm. These are all sort of herbs that don't really, they not sound not very familiar. Um, but certainly when you look at the at PubMed about what's happening with Zayasan um, in both humans and rodent models and a couple of case reports in, in veterinary medicine, but nothing more robust, unfortunately, um, we're now seeing that they have been able to use metabolomics in rodent models to look at what zayasan, which in Chinese medicine is a liver herb, mm-hmm does to the brain. And it's actually quite cool because in Chinese medicine, they talk about the um, if there's a, a behavioural challenge or mental disorder, that it's often something to do with the liver, um, mm. some liver dysfunction. And I don't think that's beyond the realm of kind of common Western medicine sense when you think about like hepatic encephalopathy mm-hmm. yep. um, or being drunk for, yep. for, for that matter. So 
So when they've looked at, okay, what does, what does this herb do? What do these eight herbs or nine herbs, depending on the exact recipe that's used, do for the gut, the liver um, and the brain? And it's quite interesting in that it it's increases um, uh, superoxide dimutase uh, and antioxidant pathways in the liver um, and also it affects glutamate, glutamine, GABA um, metabolism in the brain. Um, and so they've kind of validated as well as some other neuroimmune effects and cell signaling effects um, between the liver and the brain. So they've found that this herb, which is kind of traditionally used for IBS-like conditions, mm-hmm. It's it's now showing that it's kind of validating this um, this liver gut brain axis, uh, and it's doing uh, amino acid um, and neurotransmitter metabolism, um, and it has wow. uh, antidepressive effects, which I think a lot more we're sort of starting to appreciate that canine um, general um, generalized anxiety disorder has some of more of the depression yeah. features, yeah. Um, where depressive serotonin level features in yeah. humans, I think. So so yeah, that's a super interesting interesting yeah, one. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, it's, I use it, it's safe along, uh, alongside SSRIs. Um, oh, nice. I think that certainly if people are, are kind of piqued with an interest with this stuff, I think it's important to look at saying, okay, well, go on PubMed and see what the, the studies are doing, but also have a look at some of the veterinary herbal medicine textbooks yeah. um, and talk to people who know more and before, like to assess your comfort levels. Certainly, and a big barrier with the use of Chinese herbal medicine um, in in an allopathic Western medicine sense is that it's, it's important in Chinese medicine to ensure that the energetics of the of the herbal formula meet the patient rather mm-hmm. than saying, okay, this is a Western disease, definitively diagnosed, this is the herb to treat. Yeah. The reason that I wanted to talk about Zayasan, which is probably one of the top 10 formulas that I use in clinic, is that it's very neutral um, and there's a lo- it's very forgiving mm-hmm. um, and uh, in that the dis- like trying to accurately diagnose the Chinese energetics um, isn't as important with it. That's and, and similarly with when I was talking about like elimination diets, um, a lot of the disease that I work with is chronic disease. Mm-hmm. So we've got the liberty with the right expectations um, communicated with the client to say, hey, we want to try this. A, we have to see if they're going to eat it. Uh, we're going to try this for a couple of months. If it makes the uh, digestion worse um, or it makes the liver enzymes go up rather than down or it makes their behaviour worse, we'll swap, take the information from that and and, and look at different approaches. Yeah. For example, with herbal medicine, um, it, the, it's thought that this herb increases uh, circulation in the liver. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would make a more acute um, inflammatory condition of the liver worse. Yeah. So you'd see liver enzymes going up. Yeah. Um, so that information I'd go, okay, well, let's uh, swap to a different formula that does the is more acute inflammatory action, uh, acting on the liver. Yeah. Um, or in the gut, if it's more more towards that IBS-like syndrome versus inflammatory bowel disease or yeah. acute an acute gastroenterosis, then improving the blood supply to the mucosa of the gut using this formula will actually um, aggravate a more yeah, acute sure. system. So yeah. very simplistically, I'd say if, if we have in a conventional uh, practitioner who's wanting to explore this, like if it was a patient that you really felt needed something like corticosteroids and was like non-refractory to uh, a novel or hydrolyzed diet, like... I probably wouldn't reach for this herb in that instance. However, if there's more like the IBS, irritable bowel-like, stress, diarrhea, adrenaline diarrhea when they're out on a walk, um, generalised anxiety disorders, panic phobias, that's when I'd be starting to say, okay, this formula uh, really could could be one to consider. Yeah. 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 And so are you routinely, when you're sort of doing your revisits with these guys that you're doing elimination diets and trials of... of, um, medicating with herbs mm-hmm. in, are you routinely having the um, pet parents take a diary of a whole heap of different symptoms that you're looking for of how they're responding and then routinely doing follow-up bloods at that two-month mark as well to have a look at organ function and what's happening there? I mean, it depends. Uh, it's always individualised. Yeah. Um, so it's... It Nothing can routine. Be. No, no, no. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, there's certainly a, more of an art to integrative medicine and I'm, I'm proud of that, the art, because I think it's like it's yeah, clinical judgement yeah. and I think it's uh, by and large maybe being slightly lost. Um, but 
It would depend. The thing to point out with transference anxiety, and this is something a slight seg- uh, slight um, divergence, but if someone, if if you put your hand on your heart and you're stressed and you're not taking good care of yourself and you're looking at your pet that's got digestive problems and anxiety problems and you're at the vet, um, even the holistic vet or uh, conventional practitioner and you're constantly going back for relapses and not being able to quite get on it, please look after yourself better and and do do some, um, some support for yourself, some self-care. So sometimes around this like canine anxiety, IBS, situation, I often don't like people going home with a directive to do an Excel spreadsheet because I think it can make the the stress in the household way worse. So I think it can be counterproductive. Yeah. So sometimes I'd be more like, and, and to answer your question about liver enzymes, it would really depend on what the baseline was before. Yeah, like if I had yeah. a super healthy young animal that had uh, had uh, like a, a biochem panel a year ago um, and there was no no hep- like hepatic um, stress at all, nothing going on. Um, I, I wouldn't really do uh, two or three month bloods um, just after starting a herbal preparation if the pet was doing really well mm-hmm. um, as a whole. Um, I'd probably be more thinking about, okay, well, that might, might alter when I'd consider doing my next round of screening bloods. Yeah. However, if the patient had come to me for a second opinion for a hepatopathy of unknown origin um, and I my hypothesis was like I think it's chronic grumbling hepatopathy or triaditis in a cat, whatever, I would say, yeah, I definitely want to do the two to three month follow-up bloods. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, if they can afford it because that's yeah. the other thing. The other thing is like we need to remember that as veterinary medicine gets more technical, it it, it is getting more costly. And, and that's fair enough. Like medicine is very expensive to deliver, particularly when we don't have Medicare um, and vets uh, work really hard. Um, so but um, I do think that we need to also, and this is where empirical and the art of, of medicine and, and clinical exams and discussing with people is saying, okay, if it gets if if this formula makes your pet sick, which is unlikely, um, because there's a lot of um, uh, testament to the the lack of um, adverse events and and that it's generally regarded as safe in the circles of people that have been using this for thirty years plus, um, alongside rodent human models, um, that if they're not doing well, stop. Yeah. Like use your intuition. It's the same as like I just use the herbal medicines like drugs, um, and and I use the same pharmacovigilance that I would use for delivering an NSAID um, uh, compared to this. However. The thing is that we I don't see the side effects um, and most of the practitioners that use these herbs don't see the side effects and we are looking for them. Um, it, it's just that if if we're saying we um, – it's the same as trialling an NSAID. Like, you know, I put on my label for these herbs, like stop and stop giving and call me if there's diarrhoea, hyperexia, yeah, got to have res- you've got to have respect for them. Yeah, in that, in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the thing with them is that because they're synergistic and I like Steve Marsden who who taught mm-hmm. me Chinese herbal medicine and Chinese food therapy, like he talks about this concept of the choir where in the choir like all of these different herbs are just doing little bits and, yeah. and they're, they're yeah. creating this um, uh, symphony of what's happening in the body that's very – and this becomes sort of people start thinking, oh, check out, and this is all esoteric, but the intelligence of how humans have co-evolved with plant and fungal medicines and plant and fungal metabolites to actually just uh, plug in quite nicely together. Yeah, that's yeah. a really nice analogy. Yeah, yeah I like thanks. That. So a couple of the other herbs um, uh, uh, that I'd looked for and I think are showing very cool promises, Wathania, ashwagandha. Yeah. Um, it's mostly uh, the evidence base in, in dogs um, coming out of India, the evidence base is around hepatoprotection and antioxidant function um, in placebo-controlled trials. Um, but in humans and, and rodent models, it's certainly looking at its ability to modulate the HPA access mm. um, and uh, and doing that um, via reducing cortisol levels, which is seen with um, – it's, again, when you, when you read the, the papers, it spins your head a little bit because sometimes, like, anxious dogs in some papers have, like, low cortisol and uh, aggressive dogs have high and then we need to look more at cortisol to testosterone ratios and – and it, it's it's a little bit of a head spin. Um, 
but yeah, withania, um, it, it's it's shown in rodent models to attenuate stress um, in, in unfortunate stress models that they do, um, and and have a cognitive um, improvement. And and the other thing with a lot of these things is that they all seem to have some you know, neuro anti-inflammatory effects and mm. neuroinflammation. Um, University of Western Sydney in uh, in here in Sydney um, doing work on like saffron and ginkgo and some mm. uh, ginseng in uh, human dementia, which I think is really interesting yeah. clinical trial to watch out for. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, turmeric on brain health. Um, so that's withania I really like um, because when I'm thinking about um, uh, using it for compassionate reasons or for, uh, for, for the reason of trying to tick multiple boxes with multiple health goals, um, I like it that it's got some uh, osteoarthritic uh, potential in humans. Um, it's certainly got some very interesting stuff around chemo prevention, which I think everyone needs to uh, understand that chemo uh, protecting against getting cancer is is what we should be absolutely thinking about. And there's books on anti-cancer diet, all of the foods that you can just build into your day-to-day life um, for yourself. Um, mm. But be aware that, okay, if I'm thinking about using a drug or a herb for any condition um, and one's got kind of negative side effect profile and then the other one might have some positive side effects to say like I can't promise that this withania that I want to use for your dog's um, refractory anxiety or that, that SSRIs don't work for them and makes them worse with the hypervocalization or whatever else is going on, then I might say, okay, well, Let's use the withania plus or minus some other herbs because I like the synergy. Um, it also means you can do lower doses. Um, that, okay, we're using it for primary reason number one, your chief complaint that you want me to address. Um, however, what's cool about this one is if we put your pet on this for the anxiety, um, we don't have to panic necessarily, provided they're going well, about um, de-escalating and weaning off it because over the long term, um, we, we can cross our fingers a little bit and we don't have like I certainly can't guarantee this and as a holistic practitioner and doing herbal medicine, I don't sell false hope. Like I, I really need to be clear with my communication. It's unfair and unethical to, to sell false hope to people that I say, look, I can't promise it, but here are some papers. Look where this is going with the fact that people want to put withania in the drinking water for chemo prevention. Wow. Like, you know, this is they're trying to work out how they can grow this at yeah. huge quantities yeah. with the right rootstock to yeah. turn this into a chemo preventative agent and a neuroprotective agent. Yeah. Um, and, and It's exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's that. Reishi mushroom, mm. which uh, I think uh, a lot of people – probably won't be familiar with reishi, but um, certainly uh, in the human naturopathic world, it's it's very much used for its ability to modulate the T helper cells um, in around allergies. And certainly it's got momentum in cancer. Um, and I certainly use it um, in those in those fields as well. Um, and and I think that P&I and the gut-brain axis is super important for cancer as a side note. <laughs> um, but reishi is an interesting one with the recent studies. Like it's got a whole plethora of, of stuff going on with it. Um, it's got a reputation for being calming, um, etc. But when we look at, okay, what does it do? Um, it's got GABAergic effects. Um, again, the, it's, a, it's a prebiotic. Withania is a prebiotic as well, by the way, um, that uh, we, we look at... Um, in, in again, rodent models at this point with this, there's not a lot in reishi in dogs, unfortunately, um, to date, not robust data. But with rodents, they're looking at how can they damage control high-fat, high-carb diets and metabolic syndrome, obesity um, in rats. Um, and what they found was that the reishi dual extract, um, which is what I'd be using in pets, it, it was able to manipulate the gut-brain axis. It was able to uh, uh, um, return to a level of homeostasis and, and damage control the, the metabolic inflammation in the wow. body through all of this neuroimmune 
um, gut brain uh, pathways. Um, so certainly it's too complex to get into today, um, but that's a cool paper for people to read. Yeah, and that's got yeah. very real world applications to say, look, um, yeah, clearly there's a chronic disease burden happening in the world. Um, uh, it's it's very concerning, particularly around um, neurodegenerative disease, mm-hmm. cancer, um, developmental disorders. Um, it's it's pretty crazy. And so looking at saying, okay, um, I think that we can be helping our pets with this um, around compassionate use or just to be aware that this this is coming and mm. these these tools will filter into nutrition and the nutraceutical world and, and maybe through um, phytopharmaceuticals, which is the whole regulatory body of, of um, kind of pharmaceutical grade um, herbal combinations um, to sort of harness that synergy, that, that this stuff um, is a huge opportunity to improve pets' lives and humans' lives and also the environment because to to grow the fungal, like to, to get back in touch with nature and grow these these um, these plant-based medicines rather than using petroleum-based medicines, which uh, that's kind of where medicine comes from really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also obviously that medicine came from plants yes. <laughs> by and large, um, that we sort of go back to that. Um, and I think the cool thing um, is the potential for translational research um, using the insights for how we better look after our naturally the naturally occurring disease processes or ideally preventing them for as long as absolutely possible with our pets um, is is a very underutilized at present model for what insights we can gain to to really I would say save humanity like not just help humanity but save humanity from the chronic health burden like our pets they live in our households like their cancer rates are huge um, they're eating a diet that is uh, by and large so different from what human nutritionists say um, like we we and I use this analogy with um, people that I talk to, like if if you went to a, a doctor with your child and they said feed like one, or pick one cereal mm, from Cheerios. pick one cereal, pick a protein powder from the health food aisle, and pick a multivitamin A to Z. Just feed that. There's no for every meal for forever. every meal for ninety years. There's no evidence to support that colourful veggies uh, fresh makes any difference. Um, that's what you need to do. Yeah, that's kind of what we've been saying now for a little while in veterinary medicine. Um, and the pet guardians aren't really up for it anymore. Um, and 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 then with that, we look at what's happening in human medicine, and they're like in real world scenarios where the random clinical trial is of question nowadays across multiple diverse um, factors and we're looking at, okay, real world trials, while we're still in veterinary medicine fixated by and large on kibble um, and and a nicely packaged up convenient food, the human world is saying eat Mediterranean style. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so the parallels are just not there. No, 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 no. Yeah. But they're coming. They're yeah. coming because the precision medicine, being able to say, all right, well, you know, Matt's saying that there's, your head will spin when you read these papers, um, and that yeah, we're not quite there in being able to nail how we can say, all right, that microbiome's happening. We can we can test out microbiome like with Texas A and M, like we can do a di- dysbiotic index um, and and look at what's going on with the microbiome. There's some other players that are coming forward, and I'm still doing a lot more research into the accuracy of these microbiome mapping. Um, but the Illumina um, MS sequencing program, I think out of Wales, is is collating some really cool big data. Um, we'll only get more um, uh, able to do this stuff with the help of technology. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at with, okay, away from biofeedback, massaging your dog, um, clinical aromatherapy, uh, pheromone spray, um, uh, transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation. If I'm thinking about how can I manipulate the the gut brain axis yep. uh, and do mind body medicine, I'd be looking at that. Yep. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, it's certainly an exciting space to be watching, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think that people can start to say, look, uh, I'm not quite comfortable with it with the level of evidence. Um, I'm waiting for more. Yeah, um, but it's coming. But, it, but it's coming. But I'd also say like 
don't wait because I think that compassionate or strategic medicine, like I don't believe a three-year-old dog should be on steroids for their skin Mm. for the next 10 years of their life. I don't really care how good the dog looks. It's not a tolerable side effect in my opinion. Mm. Um, If we can find other ways that uh, would be seen as alternative at the moment, um, but in my opinion, compassionate, that I'd say, well, no, I think we actually provided we can maintain this dog's quality of life as amazing off one of the high-level medications used for, say, uh, itch. Um, uh, If we can control things for an amazing quality of life without that, um, which it's arguable about quality of life on some of these drugs long-term, particularly when people say, I've been on that medication, I don't want my pet on it, um, then I think that that's... That's a a place, like, to me, that's a signal to say, yeah, actually, from a clinical judgment point of view, I don't know if that's a great idea for the dog to be on that long term. Like, I do think that compassionately, um, I'm not going to wait for the the evidence and say, yeah, that's the standard of care. I know, obviously, there's a lot happening around topical EFAs and and certainly um, DHA and and probiotics, even for ATP. Um, But that's just an example of where I think that we can move further into compassionate use rather than just waiting for for an animal to be like super refractory to something. Yeah. Like phenobarb for epilepsy, again, is another one. Like it's not great for the liver. We all know that um, yeah. as vets. Yeah. Um, and we know that the liver and the brain's talking to one another. So could we think about what else could we do? Um, yeah. And bear in mind that the evidence, like the evidence that people are waiting for, it takes 11 years and 1.1 billion US dollars or maybe 13 years and 1.1 billion US dollars to get a new molecular entity um, through the drug discovery pipeline. Um, If you're waiting for the commercial products to turn reishi mushroom into a pharmaceutical drug, um, you're going to be waiting a long time. It's a whole lifetime for an animal. Yeah. 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 And and I think that uh, that people, vets could be feeling a bit better about um, how some of them are uh, the burnout and compassion fatigue if they if they looked at this as well. So I think it's very important for veterinary um, mental wellbeing to yeah. see what's happening with their gut brain axis and their sympathetic overdrive perhaps um, and how they can support their vagal tone. Um, and uh, valerian's another herb actually that's got vagal tone activating properties um, yeah. for, and sleep. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing um, – I'm conscious of time, but the other thing that I wanted to touch on was the sleep hygiene. Your pet shouldn't be sleeping in front of your big screen blue light TV in your apartment um, at 9pm at night. Mm. Well, no one should. (laughs) No, no, but I'm a vet, so I've just focused on, yes, I know these recommendations hopefully help families. If I say, yeah, feed broccoli to your dog, I'm like, and eat some yourself. Um, (laughs) It's chemo preventative. Um, But the yes, yeah, sleep hygiene. Dogs need sleep. I know Kirsty talks a lot about it, and cortisol breaks and sleep wake cycles. Um, it's it's really the future of medicine to be looking at this stuff. So, do we have some blue blocker glasses available that dogs and cats can wear yet? <laughs> Rex, Rex, blue light. <laughs> oh, I don't know, but I think it. I think it's uh, it kind of defeats the purpose. It's like actually just go to bed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah read yeah, a book. Yeah. yeah. What you're doing for yourself is only going to benefit everyone in the household, which is comes back to that One Health mindset, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. One, one Health um, like or Eco Health, which I prefer, which is like the looking at improving human health, pet health, um, uh, agricultural health, health and, yeah. envir- and restoring ecosystem yeah. using all win-win-win-win strategies yeah. is yeah. super cool, um, super important with particularly looking at pandemics and rainforest yeah. deforestation and yeah. all of that. But dogs and humans share the like we see even in zoo animals like the the humanization of the microbiome so if people are like oh my dog's got uh, like the same gut problems as I do and I think look I wouldn't be surprised if there's some crosstalk and oh, some course. some human yeah. like some uh, microbiota shifts that are happening at the same time um, I don't think anyone's really looked at it but I do think that our dogs are the canary in the mine with regards to what how much cancer we get from what we eat and what's yeah. under our kitchen cupboard and that yeah. they're walking through the chemicals on, on your floor um, and that we, we, all of this is really connected. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think that's 
a, a fantastic exploration into how we can manipulate the gut, brain, skin, immune, everything access. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've talked a little bit about sleep hygiene, which is so important as a foundation for everyone's health as well. But just lastly, before we end up, um, a little bit more about how you use tea touch and relaxation and acupuncture, acupressure, um, meditation techniques uh, in a practical sense amongst everything else as well. And then we can reach our conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a nice one to, to land on because I think it really can be the joyful moments of, of having a pet and yeah. why pets are good for our health. Cause I think people are, shouldn't, I wish people weren't on spreadsheets and off. Unfortunately, people are desperate and on the internet and there's some great information going on between pet guardians on the internet. Um, but I think that people may be missing out on quality time with their pets because of everything they're trying to do for their health. And yeah. And particularly when they're hearing things from online that doesn't really sound like what their vets are talking about and this kind of gap there. So I think that tea touch, massage, meditation, these are all good for people too, to be mm. like touching a dog, to massaging a dog is a two-way street. It's yeah. rewarding. I love doing acupuncture and calming dogs down, doing yeah. tea touch in clinic. Yeah. Like it's so nice to just sit with a dog for 20 minutes and see them relax. Like it's, yeah. it's grounding. Well, that's like, you know, therapy dogs that go into Absolutely. They're all therapy dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but we also need to remember not to ask too much for our dogs either like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yes. Um, so with, with tea touch, uh, I recommend it for all of my behavior, like any, anything, um, pretty much all of my pets that come to me because I also use it to train dogs for dental interventions like home dental care. I'd like to start doing some T-Touch on their gums. T-Touch, um, I think the place to start is the ear stroke or ear slide mm -hmm. um, because it also um, plugs into this auricular vagal nerve stimulation. I think it probably works on, on vagus nerve. That's just a hypothesis that I have. Um, but I'd be yeah asking people to do some T-Touch sessions a couple of times a week and just explore massage in general, particularly particularly the lower back, like the lower back, the kind of doggy love handles, as, uh, as I sort of explained to people, particularly when you can see this kind of big rocks of tense muscles and yeah. um, and particularly the um, uh, QL origin, like where the, um, so that's where the rib cage ends and the yeah. sort of muscles up near the, on either side of the spine, like massage those for your dog, build that into like maybe put, like spray some, Lavender, be very careful with essential oils with cats in a household mm -hmm. and, and just stick to um, very basic um, pet safe and check out. There's a lot on the AS, ASPCA hotline about poison essential oils, mm -hmm. but some Adaptil, um, go on Spotify and get th like through a dog's ear or through a cat's ear, um, lay down with your pet, um, turn the blue lights off, um, you know, drink a chamomile tea, see if your pet wants some <laughs> chamomile tea and and just do these massage sessions and um, like I would be – and a lot of this is calm training as well. So I'd be like, you know, doing – when they're calm, kind of mark that behaviour and be like calm dog, good calm, good calm, mm. just like how you teach a puppy to sit, like mm -hmm. good calm. And, and really that's where that kind of play dead trick comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and then looking at uh, Karen overall as the person, and I think Kirsty mentioned Karen um, on the recent podcast that um, – Current overalls relaxation protocol um, and biofeedback protocols are very available on the internet. Um, you need a bit of patience, but I think that's key here is that the grounding can't like if yeah. you're if you just rhythmically work through and systematically work through these things, like dogs just um, they you increase your leadership role for your pet, um, which they feel emotionally secure when you you're, they don't have to think that they're um, protecting you or et cetera. They're looking to you for information, not looking at, uh, at other um, sort of uh, anxious dogs at the street for information. Um, <laughs> then it's that bonding experience. It's that leadership um, program stuff, um, which is what, what the behaviourists talk about. It's obviously cortisol, uh, like looking at cortisol lowering effects um, and, and again, trying to make sure there's no muscular pain contributing to behavioural issues. Um, so that's all like kind of T-touch, et cetera. And then the biofeedback is about working through these protocols. There's another visual tracking meditation that can, people can try and track down um, or online from Karen Overall um, about getting pets to watch things, even if it's like just a treat. And it sort of builds into impulse control training, mm, um, which yeah. a lot of people do. 
Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of that. And then the other thing is like the endorphin bathing. Um, why I use acupuncture uh, and and tens uh, electroacupuncture is is that the they get metencephalin and all of these endogenous opioids released, and so they're quite calm with that. And I think people can build acupressure. Lucky Dog Acupressure is an awesome website that people can start okay, doing some at home acupressure. Normally I instruct people like if the pet likes it, if the pet's enjoying it, you're doing it well for them and if yeah. they're walking away then you need to change it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think those like a couple of times a week yeah, um, nice. as a kind of bonding session is is good for yeah. everyone. And yeah. then get out in nature. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah um, soil-based probiotics we didn't talk about today, but like if, you, if you've got access to grass that's not got glyphosate sprayed on it or 2,4-D or spearhead or um, et cetera, throw your dog's food on the grass. Like get yeah. some dirt. Like, yeah. the, like dirt is, uh, you know, they can eat it. Yeah. Look yeah. at African wild dogs, um, you know, in the dust in Botswana, like they're eating dirt. They're getting like their meat is <laughs> got a, a crust of dirt on yeah. it. It's yeah. probably got much more than probiotics in it too, some minerals. beautiful minerals and things. Yeah, yeah. Minerals yeah. for sure and Amazing. clays. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's about oh, it. So fascinating. My goodness. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. But I know that we better got on with the rest <laughs> of our day. Yeah. Um, just before we finish out, is there anything else that you wanted to add or any sort of conclusion that you wanted to make to leave everyone with? Um, nutrition is medicine. Yeah. yeah and and also it. that the apple a day keeps a doctor away. I think with, when you look at um, polyphenolics, prebiotic, pectins, yeah. um, all of this sort of thing, you start go, okay, well, we need to translate these old wives' tales and what Hippocrates said in, in like, Hippocrates, famous for um, food as medicine, but he yeah. also was famous for saying, like, all, all disease, disease starts in the gut. gut. Um, you know, that's, uh, I think it's it's really coming full circle. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Matt, as always. I'll see yeah. you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's podcast, jump onto iTunes to give us a rating and review and help others find it. 